Why don't we bow our heads and pray for God's Spirit to change our hearts through his word. In Jeremiah chapter 15, Jeremiah says to God, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord, God Almighty. Father, we pray that like Jeremiah, we would have an appetite for your words. Would they come to us now by your Spirit? And would they be our joy and our heart's delight? For your name's sake. Amen. Harry Wu was a Chinese-American human rights activist who spent 19 years in Chinese labor camps between 1957 and 1976. After his release, he immigrated to America to work as a visiting science professor at UC Berkeley. In 1988, so that's 12 years after his release from the labor camps. In 1988, he was invited to give a lecture about his experiences in China's labor camps. Here's what he said when he looked back on that first lecture. I had only just begun when suddenly I stopped. I couldn't prevent the tears from running down my cheeks. I was crying for probably 15 to 20 minutes. They let me cry. The first two years in the labor camp, I cried. But after that, never. No tears for 20 years. But in 1988, it all came out. Harry Wu's story of interrogation, forced labor, torture, indoctrination, and near starvation is summed up in this one quote. He says, One time after seeing a burial of fellow inmates, I thought, Human life has no value here. It has no more importance than cigarette ash flicked in the wind. Human life has no value here. It has no more importance than cigarette ash flicked in the wind. It's easy to see why Harry Wu would say that about a prison labor camp. But if God isn't for us, those words are also true outside the labor camp fence. If this world has no creator, or if the creator of the world has no interest in us, then Harry Wu's words would apply to the universe itself. Human life has no value here. It has no more importance than cigarette ash flicked in the wind. If we're all simply temporary arrangements of atoms, then ultimately we have no more importance than the arrangement of atoms in cigarette ash. Thankfully, the Bible tells us that we do have a creator. He reveals his existence through the world around us. Just walk down the road to Central Park and you'll see some of the hallmarks of God's creative work. But that doesn't solve our problem entirely because we need to know whether this creator God is for us. If we're not valuable in his sight, then we're back where we started. No better off in the final analysis than other arrangements of atoms, 
like ash from a cigarette. In today's passage, Abraham asks God two questions. His questions for God boil down to, what can you give me and how can I be sure? What can you give me? How can I be sure? Those questions aren't just relevant for Abraham. They're relevant for everyone, for each person here today. We should all want to ask God, what can you give me? How can I be sure? Abraham asks excellent questions. What we'll discover as we study this passage in light of the rest of the Bible is that God gives both those questions the same answer. We'll start with the first of Abraham's questions. What can you give me? Please look down to verses 1 and 2 on page 12. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. At first sight, Abraham sounds a bit ungrateful. God speaks kindly to him, saying, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham responds, what will you give me since I'm childless? Some translations say, what can you give me? Which captures the logic of Abraham's response. Abraham is saying to God, what reward can you give me since I'm childless? Abraham focuses on his childlessness because God had previously promised him descendants. God had even said Abraham would become a great nation. And yet in the years since God made that promise, Abraham and his wife Sarah haven't been able to have any children. Abraham here at the start of chapter 15 is like a child who has been promised a trip to the zoo and won't be satisfied with anything else. Ice cream? No, you, you said we were going to the zoo. $50 to spend on toys at FAO Schwartz. No, you said we were going to the zoo. How about the Coney Island roller coasters? No, you promised we would go to the zoo. Abraham is fixated on his lack of children. For him, everything hinges on the promise of descendants that God had made to him in the past. And the rest of the Bible helps us see why that promise was so important to Abraham. The rest of the Bible explains why nothing else will satisfy him. If we go back toward the start of the Bible, we find in Genesis chapter 3 the hope of a future redeemer. Unlike Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who caved in to the devil's pressure, this future Redeemer will triumph over the devil. He'll overcome all the traps set by the devil, temptation, sin, and death. One other piece of information given about the coming Redeemer in Genesis 3 is that he'll be born of a woman. He'll be one of us, humanity's champion. When Abraham arrives on the scene, God reveals more information about that all-important Redeemer. God says to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, since true blessing for humanity comes through the Redeemer, that must mean the Redeemer will be one of Abraham's descendants. 
a member of that nation promised to Abraham. So Abraham has been paying attention. He's right to think that his own childlessness stands in the way of any true reward from God. He's right to insist on the zoo trip, as it were. Abraham needs to have descendants so the Redeemer can come and bring hope to the world. We can be sure that is what is on Abraham's mind, because in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That's what Jesus says of Abraham. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. In other words, Abraham was looking forward to the day when the Redeemer would come. He was looking forward to sharing in the Redeemer's victory. Abraham rejoiced in advance. But for the Redeemer to come, Abraham needs to have descendants in accordance with God's promise. Well, God then confirms that his original promise is still on track. The zoo trip has not been cancelled. Let's look down to verse 4 and I'll read from there. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. The promise is still on track. Abraham will have descendants, which means God's promise about the Redeemer will be fulfilled will come to pass. Well, can I ask whether you see things as clearly as Abraham did? He knew that nothing in this life would satisfy him other than the coming Redeemer. The only reward he was interested in was the eternal reward the Redeemer would bring. Take away the Redeemer, and from Abraham's point of view, God couldn't do anything for him because he would still be trapped in a fallen world of temptation, sin, and death. Do you have the same clarity Abraham had? When you think about life in this world, someone else who shared Abraham's clarity was the Apostle Paul. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul knew that without Christ, his life would be worth no more than cigarette ash flicked into the wind. Without Christ, in the words of Ecclesiastes, Everything is vaporous. Everything we do in this world is like chasing the wind, it says in Ecclesiastes. If you're listening this morning as a a non-Christian, I wonder what rewards you might be seeking in this world. Abraham knew only the Redeemer could satisfy him. If you're not on the same page as Abraham, what rewards in this life are you looking to for satisfaction? Are they truly worthy of the weight of desire that you're placing on them? In his 1952 book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes human history as the long, terrible story of man 
trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. It's a terrible story because, as C.S. Lewis goes on to say, true happiness and peace can't be found apart from God. Lewis says, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Only God can give happiness and peace that last forever. And he gives us those things through the Redeemer, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Isn't it time for you, if you are a a non-Christian listening today, isn't it time for you to do what Abraham did and say to God, nothing but the Redeemer will satisfy me. Please give me Jesus. That's something you could say to God today. Give me Jesus. In verse 6, we find out how someone connects their life to Jesus, the Redeemer, and all his benefits. God has just told Abraham that a son will come from his own body. More than that, God has said his descendants will be as uncountable as the stars in the night sky. And then verse 6 tells us that Abraham believes in God, this promise-making God. And his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith connects him to the Redeemer and all his benefits, including the benefit of righteousness. Even on the human level, faith is often essential for receiving gifts. When I was told that Krispy Kreme was giving out free original glazed donuts for vaccinated customers, it seemed almost too good to be true. A free donut, original glazed, just for showing up with my vaccination card. If I hadn't had faith that the promotion really was genuine, I would never have received the gift of a free donut. But I did have faith in the offer, and that faith led me to the nearest Krispy Kreme, and I received a free donut. Let's be honest here. My faith in the offer has led me to Krispy Kreme again and again. (laughs) And each time I've received the gift of a free donut. So we often need faith to receive gifts on the human level. And that's also true when it comes to receiving gifts from God. God gives righteousness to those who believe. Abraham looked forward in faith to the Redeemer Jesus. We look back in faith to the same Redeemer. Thanks to Jesus' death on the cross, where he paid the penalty for other people's sins, those who believe gain righteousness. Everything hinges on Jesus the Redeemer. What can you give me? Abraham says to God, the answer is Jesus. Now for Christians, it won't be surprising to hear that when Abraham asks God, what can you give me? The answer ends up being Jesus. You may have heard the joke about the little boy in his kid's class at church. The teacher asks the class, what's grey has a bushy tail and eats acorns? The boy puts up his hand and says, you know, it it sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus because the answer is always Jesus. But even though the answer to Abraham's question might sound predictable, 
I hope you haven't grown tired of hearing that answer, Jesus. We need the righteousness that only comes through faith in Jesus. It means that we no longer have to attain perfection because Jesus has attained it for us. And that's good news for anyone who comes to Jesus in faith. It's good news for Manhattanites. People in Manhattan have very high standards. It's a feature of Manhattan. And as a result, we constantly ask ourselves, do I measure up? Do I measure up? It exhausts us. It makes us anxious. In our honest moments, we recognize we don't measure up and we can't measure up. But if you've put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to be that faultlessly perfect Manhattanite because Jesus has measured up for you. Those who trust in him are united to him and enter into God's presence thanks to his righteousness. It's time for us to move on to Abraham's second question. He asks this next question in response to what God says in verse 7. So let's look down to verse 7, please. And he said to him, God is speaking, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he said to him, and this is Abraham's second question, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now Abraham understands that the land both he and God are talking about is heavenly land a version of Canaan fit for God's presence. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was looking forward to a better country, a heavenly one. So when Abraham asks God, how may I know that I will possess the land? He's asking a question any Christian can relate to, because at some point we've all asked that question ourselves. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that I will live forever with God in the world to come? That promised land. And so we also need to hear God's answer to Abraham's question. God answers Abraham by setting up a covenant ceremony. If you look down again to the passage, please, I'll read from verse 9. So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. That's a very grisly scene. Think about all the blood involved. The heifer, the goat, and the ram are all split in two, with each half carcass facing the other half carcass with a pathway between. You'd be able to see all the internal organs of those split animals. It is grisly. But Abraham would have been familiar with this kind of scene. This is a covenant ceremony. You can see that word covenant in verse 18. Covenant making was a widespread practice in the ancient world. And there are numerous other examples in the Bible that help us understand what's going on. When two people wanted to guarantee to each other that they would always be on good terms with each other, they made a covenant. And covenants had ceremonies just like the ceremony God calls for in verse 9. 
once animals had been cut in two, the people making the covenant would walk between the pieces as a way of saying, may I become like these dead creatures if I break the covenant I'm making with you. So a covenant is a relationship creating deal with teeth, with serious teeth. A Bible scholar named O. Palmer Robertson sums it up like this. The parties of the covenant are committed to one another by a process of bloodshedding. This bloodshedding represents the intensity of the commitment of the covenant. This bloodshedding represents the intensity of the commitment of the covenant. Now let's remember this ceremony is God's answer to Abraham's question, how may I know that I will possess the land? The aim of this covenant ceremony is to make Abraham sure that, yes, he will possess the land. We need to figure out how this ceremony gives Abraham the confidence he seeks. Verse 17 can help us. It says, Now it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these pieces, that's the animal pieces. The smoking oven and the blazing torch represent God. In the Bible, smoke and fire are visual symbols of God's presence. The Israelites are led through the wilderness by a pillar of smoke during day and a pillar of fire at night. Smoke and fire are visual symbols of God's presence. And so God is doing what covenant makers do. He walks through the animal pieces. What's strange is that only God walks through the pieces. Normally both of the parties involved in making a covenant would walk through the pieces, pledging to suffer death like those animals if they don't honor the covenant obligations. But in this case, only God walks through the pieces. Nothing is said about Abraham walking through them as well. Just stop and think about that. God is saying, I'll do the dying for both of us to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. I'll do the dying for both of us to make sure my covenant promise is kept. The first readers of Genesis might well have wondered how in practice God could put his own blood at stake. But it's not a mystery for us. Because we see Jesus, God incarnate, God's Son, nailed to a cross, willingly receiving the covenant curse. In the person of his Son, God shed his blood so that his promises to Abraham and his descendants would be kept. Jesus received an undeserved curse so that we would receive an undeserved dwelling place forever. What this means is that Abraham's second question, how can I be sure, has the same answer as his first question. The answer is Jesus. God keeps his promise at the cost of his son's blood. That's how committed he is to getting his people into the promised land forever. He who did not spare his own son, Paul says in Romans 8, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Now, once again, while the answer to Abraham's second question might be predictable, I hope you haven't grown tired of hearing it. In this life, God's people often face hardships. Abraham is told in verse 13 that his descendants will be slaves in a land not their own for 400 years. And in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 14, believers are told that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. God has his reasons for the trials he sends in verse 16 of this passage, for example, God explains why those centuries of slavery in Egypt are necessary for his people. He explains to Abraham that the land can't be taken from its current inhabitants right away. It can't be taken from them until their sin has snowballed to the point where it calls for that act of judgment. Verse 16, then in the fourth generation they will return here for the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete, God says. So God has reasons for the trials he sends. But when we experience them, when we're going through them, we can find ourselves questioning whether God truly loves us. Because hardships are hard. We can find ourselves questioning whether God loves us, whether he's truly for us, whether we're truly going to make it to the promised land. That's why we mustn't grow weary of hearing the answer to Abraham's second question. How can I be sure? Jesus. We need to take that answer deeply to heart. We need to track with Paul when he says those words in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. There must have been many times during those centuries in Egypt when Abraham's enslaved descendants thought along the same lines as Harry Wu in his prison labour camp. Human life has no value here. It has no more importance than ash flicked in the wind. But those who followed in Abraham's footsteps by believing in Abraham's God could be sure that their lives had great value in God's sight. They knew the Redeemer was coming. With all the rewards he brings. And they knew their internal, their eternal inheritance was guaranteed by God's own blood. Those believers looked forward to things as yet unseen we look back on the realities themselves. God's love for us has taken shape in history and his love for us has a name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not grow weary of hearing your son's name, Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would not be distracted by the rewards of this life from Jesus, who is the only source, the only way to your true rewards, your lasting rewards. Keep our eyes fixed on him and all that he offers. 
both in this life through relationship with him and even more in the world to come. We pray, Heavenly Father, that when we go through hardships, when we're unsure about whether we will make it to your promised land, please remind us of all that Jesus has done. Show us your love in him as he dies on the cross and give us confidence that just as you have given us him even to the point of his death, you will give us not only him but also all things. Amen.